0: This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 14 Jim Mora. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches. To share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim talks with former NFL coach and NFL network analyst Jim Mora. It's the same on every team. You know,
1: you have to find a way to set aside any differences that you've had, whether they were culturally uh induced into your life or you know your parents taught you a way that you know maybe we don't all agree with you know they had a belief that's different than the you had you have to set those aside and become a team and then when you do that these barriers are broke down forever they're broke down forever and uh i think that's really what's great about team sports
0: jim talks about time with his father the lessons he learned as a player and as a coach the impact the good youth coaches have on athletes in their formative years and the way teammates are brought together from all different backgrounds and outlooks in order to accomplish a common goal.
2: Jim, I want to start by introducing you to our audience. Um, Since 13 years of age, Jim Mora Jr. grew up in the Seattle area. He moved there when his father became the defensive line coach for the University of Washington. By the time Jim Mora Jr. uh, played defensive back at Washington, where he played in two Rose Bowls, his father had already moved on to coaching in the NFL after graduating Jim spent one year coaching at Washington then moved into the pro ranks in 1985 as a quality control coach with the San Diego Chargers after coaching for the Saints and 49ers he landed his first head coaching position with the Atlanta Falcons in 2004 his most recent head coaching position was with the Seattle Seahawks in 2009 Jim is currently an analyst for the NFL Network and lives in the Seattle area with his wife daughter and three boys. Jim, thanks for joining us.
1: Jim, it's great to, to be a part of this. Thanks for having me.
2: You know, we talk about kids today having to deal with their parents bringing sports home, but your experience growing up must have taken that to an entirely different level. What was it like growing up with a dad who coached at the college level and then in the pros? Did you talk a lot of football and coaching when you were growing up?
1: Well, it was special for me, and I think that's one of the reasons that I was driven to this business. I uh, It it was very time-consuming for my father. He was away a lot, especially when he was a college coach because of recruiting. But when he was home, he was always home and he was always there for us. And to answer your question about talking football, yeah, we did talk football, but it was never extreme. Uh, If he would bring film home to watch, uh, whether he was watching a recruit or watching an upcoming opponent or simply watching some film from the team that he was coaching at the time – Uh, I would like to sit with him, and I would sit with him in our living room, and I would watch film with him, and I would ask questions. Um, My dad was great. You know, he he couldn't come to a lot of my games and a lot of my practices until I got into high school when he was then coaching for the Seattle Seahawks. But any time he was able to come to a practice or come to a game, I couldn't wait to get off the field and have a chance to just kind of talk to him and get his thoughts on on how I was performing. And uh, he was always very positive and upbeat. Um, always very constructive in his criticism. And uh, I, I was just very fortunate to grow up in a household that was supportive of me, supportive of what I wanted to do, uh, and yet uh, a mother and a father who both held us, you know, very accountable to a high standard. You know, you
2: said something interesting that uh, he was gone a lot, but when, when he was home, he was really home. Uh, that, that ability to concentrate and focus and not be thinking about the next game or whatever when he's with you, that seems like a real skill.
1: It's very tough, and I can tell you firsthand, I have, as you mentioned in the intro, I have four young children from age 8 to 16, and they're very uh, involved in athletics and academics, and they're they're great kids, and I'm blessed to have a wonderful wife. But, you know, the job that I was doing as a coach was very consuming and a lot of time spent away, And and when you come home, it's tough when you're a head coach especially to put your job aside because, you know, people always want a piece of you and you're always thinking about the next game or the next practice or maybe a transaction you have to make with a player or a tough decision you're going to have to make. But I've always felt like I owe it to my kids and I owe it to myself and I owe it to my wife to do the best job I can of leaving work at work. And so when I would come home you know, in this digital age, we've always got a BlackBerry in our hand or an iPhone in our hand or a laptop or, you know, we can pick up the newspaper, turn, turn on the news and kind of kind of tune out or, you know, uh, find a distraction. But I think it's important that when you come home, no matter what profession you're in, that you put the paper down and you close the laptop and you leave the cell phone in your, in, you know, maybe in your bedroom and you spend some face time with your family so that you can reconnect on a daily basis with them. It's hard to do. I know it's hard to do as a coach, and I'm sure it's hard to do in any business, but I think it's really important. And my dad, my dad kind of taught me that. But the other thing that I always thought was important, Jim, was to bring the family into my work environment. So that's different than bringing your work home. That's bringing the family to the work environment. As a head coach, every Tuesday night was a family dinner night. And my family and all the coaches' families uh, anybody that worked late during the week, anybody that was missing bedtime or missing dinner time, their families were invited to the office to have dinner with the, with the parent that was working. And I thought that was very important as well. So integrate your family into your work, but when you come home, leave your work at work.
2: Wow. That's, that's beautiful. You know,
1: Jim, when you played at Washington, um, w- were you a walk-on to start with? I was a walk-on and, uh, I was pretty highly recruited uh, early in my high school career, and I hurt my knee early in my senior season and didn't get to play much. And uh, but I always had dreams of playing major college football, and I was fortunate to walk on at University of Washington and earn a scholarship the, the spring of my freshman year. But
2: uh, that must have been a, a great accomplishment to first of all, kind of a come down when you recruited at first and have to go as a walk-on and then to earn a scholarship?
1: Well, it was. You know, I had high aspirations and uh, one of the most disappointing times when I was a a junior or going into my senior year at uh, Interlake High School and I was being recruited by the University of Colorado and my dad had coached at Colorado when I was a kid and that was a place that I was interested in going and uh, I had a visit planned and they called and canceled the visit on me. And so I essentially knew that I wasn't going to get a scholarship there. And then, you know, the next week the University of Washington called and said, you know, we're not going to offer your scholarship. We would like you to walk on. And that was, that was tough because I had aspirations of being a scholarship athlete. But I realized that I was just going to have to go and fight my way onto the squad. And that's what I did. And I made it my mission to, you know, a personal mission to go earn a scholarship and, uh, and really earn it by my play on the field, my attitude in the locker room, and my attitude, you know, on the practice field and in meetings and being sharp and being attentive and being a hard worker and uh you know making the coaches take notice of a guy that was willing to give it up for the team. And I was actually the very first freshman in my class to play in a varsity game. I got to run down on the opening kickoff of the of the, the first game of my freshman year. So uh I think hitting a little adversity there and not getting exactly what I wanted uh, because of the lessons I'd learned and the people I'd grown up around. Remember, I grew up in locker rooms, you know, so I saw adversity, and I, I knew what it was like to fight, and I think I took those lessons that I'd learned growing up, being around my dad and being around those situations, and channeled it into, into uh, a, a passion, a desire, a commitment to, to earn a scholarship, and I was fortunate to do so.
2: You know, we we do a lot of work with high school athletes, and one of the things I I tell them is that uh, we don't don't always know what's best for us. And, you know, it might have been uh, a really good thing that you ended up at Washington rather than Colorado.
1: I think so. I was exposed to Don James. And, uh, you know, I'd known Don James since I was a little boy. My dad and, and Coach James worked together at the University of Colorado, and my dad was the defensive line coach, and Coach James was the defensive coordinator. Uh, his daughter used to babysit me, and then when I got older, I babysat his younger daughter. So we'd had a real connection. But I was lucky to go play for this guy because he taught me so much that I still rely on in coaching now. Uh, organization, attention to detail, uh, being accountable, being demanding, uh, a lot of great lessons. He, he was a man of great integrity, uh, uh, very tough uh but also compassionate and empathetic and uh you know i every day i go on the field there's a couple of coaches i reach back into my past and try to pull lessons from and apply to my daily life as a coach one was don james and then my high school coach and my junior high coach i was fortunate to be around some great coaches growing up
2: do you, do you remember the names of your of that junior high and that high school coach
1: yeah bruce brown um is uh was my junior high coach at HIAC. and. If there's one coach in the world other than my dad that had a great influence on me, uh, and and I said a number of them did, but I'd put Bruce number two. And uh, it was because he always coached with a positive spirit, and he always, you know, there are some coaches that coach the negative. They tell you what they don't want you to do. And with Bruce Brown, it was always he was always encouraging. He was demanding. He was tough on us, but. Yeah, he was going to tell you how he wanted something done, not how he didn't want it done. Uh, and he disciplined with a gentle spirit. And by that I mean, with Bruce Brown, he always called me Jimmy. And if he was a little bit upset with me, if I didn't do something exactly right, and he held me to a high standard, he'd call me Jim. Boy, if he was really mad at me, he'd call me Mora. But it, the tone of his voice would never change. He wouldn't yell at me. I was Jimmy if I was not doing so well, Jim, and if I'd screwed up, and, and and by screw up, I mean if I'd not tried hard or not listened or not learned from my mistakes, then it became Mora. And I think that only happened one time, and it still sticks with me. And when I go out and coach, I try to keep that in mind. You know, teach kids what you want them to do. Don't teach them negatively. And teach with a gentle spirit, and yet still be demanding. Because I never wanted to let Bruce Brown down, never, and I still don't, and I still have a relationship with him and then my high school coach was Raleigh Robbins, who's now deceased, but same kind of man, you know, a man of great faith, uh, very positive, very encouraging, very upbeat, and yet very tough and I was just lucky to be around those types of men
2: Jim as you as you know, I know Bruce Brown as well, and have a really high regard for him. I, I love that idea of disciplining with a gentle spirit that's really lovely
1: yeah, he well. I got that from him, and I mean, there's so many times that I've walked on the field as a football coach with Bruce Brown in the back of my mind. I owe him so much, I could never repay him, and I, and I could tell him a million times it would never be enough how much he meant to me.
2: Yeah, that's great. Now, uh, you know, you, the two Rose Bowls you went to, um, th- what was that experience like?
1: It was awesome. It was fantastic. I'll never forget my freshman year, <clears throat> and we're playing Michigan in the Rose Bowl. And I had had the experience of being a ball boy in the, the 1978 Rose Bowl when my dad was coaching at the University of Washington, and we beat Michigan. And now I was getting the experience as a player my freshman year to play against Michigan. And I'll never forget, I was on the kickoff team, and I was on the punt return team, two special teams as a freshman. And I'll never forget the opening kickoff uh, and standing on that painted rose, that beautiful rose that they put down at the Rose Bowl at Pasadena. And thinking to myself as the whistle blew and Chuck Nelson was about to kick off, wow, there's about 80 million people watching this. And it was just, it was a surreal moment. It was uh, slow motion. Those were two years, those first two years we went to the Rose Bowl. We lost the first year. We beat uh, Iowa 28-0 the next year. That I go back to all the time in my mind. And the guys that I played with, we go back and rehash it. And not that we're living in the past, but we're reliving. Those great moments we had together, great experiences we had together.
2: What 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 can you what do you remember about some of your teammates that uh, ha- caused them to stand out in your memory?
1: Um, a lot of different things. You know, uh, my teammates came from a lot of different areas. Uh, my first day on campus, or my first day of camp at the University of Washington as a freshman, I'll never forget uh, a guy named Vince Albritton who came from McClyman's High in Oakland, and here I am. Uh, a kid from Bellevue, Washington, Interlake High School. And we couldn't have been guys from t- two more different cultures if you, you know, wrote a script. And he had a skull cap on, and he was cut up and mean-looking and tough, and an Oakland guy. And Scott Garnett, who was from down in Southern California, about a 300-pounder. We all just were different when we first started out together. Uh, Fred Small, who grew up in Compton, and had never had a white friend in his life, in his entire life, didn't trust white people. But over the course of the next few months, as we came together as a team and as a, as a freshman class, we bonded with the common goal of being a good football team and produce, or, or contributing to a team that was going to be very successful. And over the course of, of four years together, those guys became some of my best friends. But I'll never forget, we called Vince Albritton, Clinty Bow, And I'll never forget the first time I saw Clinty Bow. I mean, I, as I talk to you right now, I can remember it in my mind. He had black shorts on. He had no shirt on. He had a do-rag on. And he was walking down the hall at me, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go against this guy? Well, Fred Small, who I mentioned from Compton, who's now deceased, he ended up being a uh, California State Patrolman, was killed in the line of duty in a motorcycle accident. But I'll never forget rooming with Freddie Small on the road, and him, he used to call me Opie. Cause I was the white guy, and he was the black guy, and I'll never forget the first time he said, "You know, Opie," he says, "You're the first white friend I've ever had." You know, and those are special things. You know, those are special moments that you just don't forget.
2: Wow. Yeah. And it seems like sports is a place that, that brings people together who otherwise wouldn't ever get to know each other.
1: Uh, it's 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 a blender, is what it is. Um, it's like a Cuisinart. You throw all different kinds of people from backgrounds that uh, couldn't be more different. You've got Southerners, you've got, you know, you've got Northerners, you've got uh, black kids, white kids, rich kids, poor kids, Jewish kids, Christian kids, Muslim kids, and yet they all have to come together and set aside some of their cultural differences and become a team. And I think in doing so, um, they realize that although we may have come from different backgrounds, we're all very much the same. And I think you can develop a real compassion for people by being a part of a team. Because, you know, when you get dressed next to a guy every day and you're out in a huddle holding hands with him every day and you're working to accomplish the same goal and yet this guy's different. You know, I think I, I think a great example is is remember the Titans, the movie with Denzel Washington. And you know, that was kind of a real portrait or a real case study in really race relations in the South, but it, it's the same on every team. You know, you have to find a way to set aside any differences that you've had, whether they were culturally uh, induced into your life or, you know, your parents taught you a way that you know, maybe we don't all agree with. You know, they had a belief that's different than the you had. You have to set those aside and become a team. And then when you do that, these barriers are broke down forever. They're broke down forever. And uh, I think that's really what's great about team sports.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, you coached under your dad. I, I had my mother as a, my teacher in first and second grade. and You, you coached under your dad at the Saints, was 92 to 96. What, what did you learn from working for your dad?
1: Well, it was hard. <laughs> it was The first thing I had to learn is, what do I call him? Do I call him Dad? Do I call him Jim, which is his first name, or do I call him Coach? And, uh, you know, he's my dad, so I called him Dad. Uh, I realized that I had to be an expert in my field in order to have credibility and not have people think that there was nepotism at work, which there wasn't. I'd been in the NFL for seven or eight years at the time I went to to work for him, but I felt like I had to work extra hard to always give credibility to the fact that I was working for him, both for me and for him. Um, I found that he held me to a little different standard than the others, and probably because he didn't want anyone to ever think that he was playing favorites for me. But also found it to be extremely rewarding. To be able to go to work every day with your dad and work towards a common goal was really special. And to be on the headphones with him during a game and the interaction that you have as coaches and the adrenaline and the emotion that plays into a game and be able to share that with him was really rewarding. And to be able to go over to his house with my wife and my newborn baby after a game And kind of decompress and talk about the game, whether it was a win or a loss, was really rewarding. And then, you know, the last year that we were in New Orleans, you know, my dad had an amazing run in New Orleans. They had gone 22 years without a winning record, and he took them to the playoffs four times and, you know, really had a great career there. But at the end, as it often does, it was kind of going badly. And I just felt very fortunate that I could be there for him. When things weren't going great in his career, and that I could get in the car with him and drive to a game or drive to a meeting and just be there for him, and uh, although it was a tough time, I mean it was a time that uh, that I'll always remember and cherish.
2: You know, I uh, my my father uh, grew up on a farm in North Dakota, and he talked about going into the fields with his dad. And most kids don't get that. It used to be common if your dad was a shoemaker, you would start to work in the shoemaker shop. Um, Most kids don't get that experience. I could see where that's really special.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, we've remained real close. I mean, my dad and I are close. And it was funny, when I became the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, and my dad was out of football that year, actually he was out of football for good at that time, my very first game was against the San Francisco 49ers at San Francisco, where the the Atlanta Falcons hadn't won in 10 years, and I had gotten my dad a field pass, and I'd gotten him tickets in the stand because I wasn't sure where he wanted to be. I didn't know if he could handle being in the stands and hearing what people had to say, and yet I didn't know if he could handle the emotion of the sidelines, so I was going to kind of give him the option of going back and forth. Well, there's about two minutes left in the game, and we're holding on to a lead. But the but the 49ers are driving on us, and I'm kind of on about the 30 yard line, and I'm I'm knelt down like coaches do, you know, kind of leaning on my heels, uh, watching what's happen happening, and I feel a presence over my left shoulder. I just feel someone there, and and I hear this this voice that's familiar to me saying, "We have got to stop them. We got to get them stopped. We got what do you what's what's the defense? We got to get them stopped." And I look up, and it's my dad. And he's, he is so involved in this game, and he wants to know the defensive call. And, he, and I just said, hey, Dad, we got it. We got it. Don't worry. We got it. And we intercept the ball in the next play. And, I mean, just giving him a hug and the jubilation that he felt and how proud he was of me, but also the emotion that he felt standing above. It was amazing. It was a surreal experience. I'll never forget it.
2: Yeah, uh, that's, that's lovely. You know, we talk about responsible coaches who strive to win while using sports to teach life lessons that are athletes. Is this something that NFL head coaches aim to do, or is the win, a, win it all cost nature of pro sports just make it impossible?
1: Well, no, I think there are coaches out there that do try to teach life lessons. I think the problem with professional sports at times is we get the athlete a little bit later in life, and, and they're a little bit more set in their, in their beliefs. And uh, I think that's one thing that's really uh, important about youth coaches about high school coaches and about college coaches is that they realize the tremendous positive influence or negative influence they can have on their athletes away from the football field or away from the basketball court or away from the baseball diamond. And, you know, as I look back and I talked about Raleigh Robbins and I talked about Bruce Brown and I talked about Don James, I mean, those are three men that had a tremendous influence on me, more so than, you know, that I could even describe to you here today. And I think it's important that coaches realize that they you know they are role models and they are teaching life lessons and they do have a responsibility as a coach to provide an environment for their young athletes that is positive and that will enable these young athletes to be better human beings in the future uh, i'm very fortunate right now to be helping coach my kids uh... youth teams because i'm taking some time off from coaching and. I now get to be around some of these youth coaches, and one thing that I stress to some of them that get a little bit a little bit over the top at times about winning and losing is it's not necessarily about winning and losing right now. It's about teaching these kids how to play, how to compete, how to be good sports, how to lose, how to win, uh, how to practice hard, how to demand the best from themselves and just be the best that they can be. They don't have to be the best. They just have to be the best they can be. And uh, I think it's really important for me to be around some of these guys, because, you know, they look at me and say, this is an NFL football coach, and, you know, they, they might put me on a pedestal that I don't deserve to be on, because they aspire to be a great coach, and when I can come to them and say, all right, great, you know, you're you're doing some neat things, but remember, these are kids, okay, and there's some, there's things that are a little bit more important than, than uh, you know, whether we win or lose today, it's some lessons we need to teach them, so I've kind of taken that as a challenge to, to reach as many as these guys and kind of impart some of the wisdom that Bruce Brown and Raleigh Robbins and those guys imparted on me, try to get that out to to these youth coaches. Yeah,
2: talk about your your kids in sports and what your experience is like as being a, a sports parent.
1: Well, it's, it's, uh, I really try my very best to uh, stay in the background and be supportive. And when they come off the field or they, walk off the track, uh, come off the baseball diamond, is to say, you know, I really enjoyed watching you play, and make that the first thing I say, rather than, why did you do this, or why did you do that? Uh, Bruce Brown, we keep coming back to Bruce, but, you know, Bruce has a theory that you're either a player, you're a coach, you're an official, or you're a parent, but you're only one of those things. Don't try to be two, and if you're a parent, don't criticize the officiating. Don't criticize the coaches. Don't second-guess the coaches. Just be a parent and support your kids. And that's what I try to do. And yet, I failed miserably at it this year in my daughter's track season. Uh, my daughter, who's a freshman in high school, ended up second in the conference in the 800 meters, and uh, which was tremendous. Here's a freshman girl coming in second in the 800 meters in the conference, so now she's going to run in districts. And my daughter, her name's Lilia, is the greatest kid ever, she's a goofball, she wears funky socks, you know, she doesn't really have a warm-up routine, she's laughing, and then she just steps up and she starts to run and compete. Well, rather than embrace that, I tried to impart, impart my feelings of how you prepare and compete onto her the week of districts. So... As soon as she won or got second in, in her conference, I started to say, okay, now we need a routine. What's your warm-up routine going to be? She's, dad, my warm-up routine is I don't have a routine. Oh, we've got to get a routine. You've got to have a routine. And every night I'm saying, okay, you've got to get to bed. You've got to eat this. And I took it so far as to the 10 minutes before her race, I call her over to the fence, and I'm talking to her about the wind. She doesn't. She's 14. She doesn't care about the wind. She's just going to step on the track and run as fast as she can. And I paralyzed her with my feelings and my beliefs about how she should act and how she should race to the point where she finished last in a race that she, with her time, could have won. And it was like a horrible parenting moment, but a great lesson. You know, unfortunately, I learned at the expense of my daughter. But it was, uh, you know, you're always learning. You're always trying to get better.
2: Well, I think that's a really valuable lesson for our listeners who, who have kids competing in sports that, Sometimes I think parents can suck up all the oxygen in an activity like sports, and the kids don't—they they feel like they don't own it themselves anymore.
1: And that's what I did. And, and you know what? That was months ago, and her and I talked about it yesterday. You know, we were down at the beach here in California. She's also a volleyball player, and we were working on hitting and setting and doing some, some, some skill work, and I apologized to her again. You know, I said, I said, sometimes I forget that I'm your dad and I become your coach. And I have to remember that I'm your dad first, and I love you. Uh, I said, but you know, I am a coach by nature, and sometimes I talk to you as a coach and not as a dad. And when I do that, please tell me. You know, when it bothers you, please tell me because I don't ever want what happened at the districts to happen again. You know, and she's she's great. She laughed, gave me a hug, yeah. told me she loved me. So
2: that's great. You know, when you coach the Falcons, you coach Michael Vick. What do you, what do you think athletes today can learn from?
1: Michael Vick story. Wow. Boy, you can learn a lot. Number one, I think, you, I think you have to go back and you have to look at why Mike got into trouble. I think it's really important to go back and see what led to him getting in the trouble that he got into. And, you know, Mike grew up in an environment there in, in uh, Newport News, Virginia, where fighting dogs and maybe being involved in illegal activities was something that everybody did. And uh, yet Mike reached a point in his life where he needed to find a way to separate from the activities that he'd been involved with as a youth. And he couldn't do that. He wasn't strong enough to do that. And one of the reasons is Mike's got a great heart and he likes to please people because he's a good person, believe it or not. And I know when you say that after some of the things he's been involved in and people think you're crazy, but I know this guy very, very well, but he, he needed to separate from some of the activities that he knew were wrong but he couldn't find a way to separate from And I think young athletes need to realize that, that, you know, you, you have to be your own judge of what is right and what is wrong, and you have to be able to refuse the peer pressure to, uh, to enlist yourself in an activity that, that is not right. But I think the other thing that you learn is that, you know, Mike went and he paid his penance and he went to, to jail he went to prison. He lost everything, but he came out a new man with a new attitude he was very contrite. He apologized. He made amends, and then he committed his life to to being a a better person on all fronts. And it's not hard because he's still got people tugging at him from the past. And yet, Mike has learned how to uh, how to kind of sh- sail his own ship, I guess. And it's I'm really proud of him. And I think it, it's just it, the lesson here is resist peer pressure. You know, yeah. you know what's right, and you know what's wrong. And because your friends are tugging you in the wrong direction, be strong enough as a human being to say, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do that, you know.
2: Another lesson there is I really love dogs, and I know some of the people who are most angry at him are dog lovers. Uh, but I think there's, there's the idea of forgiveness, and um, uh, I just feel like he's, he's atoned it. used that word atone, which I, it's a really good word. And at a certain point, I feel like we just need to forgive and believe that somebody can can uh, emerge as a different person.
1: Well, here's one for you. You know what? You know who else loves dogs? And you'll never, no one will ever believe, Mike like, loves dogs. And and that just doesn't coincide with what he was doing. And I think that he was able to build this this mental barrier between what he was doing and what he loved. And it was sad. And he learned a harsh lesson. But I, I, I do believe, like you do, Jim, in forgiveness and second chances and uh you know, anyone that hears this needs to know that Mike Vick is a is a good human being. I, I said this when I was coaching him, and people would say, what's Mike like? I'd say, you know what, I'll tell you what Mike's like. I have children. I would let Mike Vick babysit my kids. I would trust him with my kids. And I still feel that way.
2: Yeah. You know, are there um, any specific life lessons you learned from either coaching or playing that you still use in your professional or personal life today?
1: Uh, yeah, I think um, overcoming adversity, staying positive. Um, you know, the book, good to great, the first line is good is the enemy of great. So holding yourself to a high standard, pushing to be better all the time. I love the saying, Joe Montana, uh, signed an autograph for me one time and he, he wrote, uh, Jim, be your best, Joe Montana. And that's how I autograph now as well, because I try to tell kids that when I speak to youths that, uh, I tell them really three things. Number one, be your best. You don't have to be the best. Just be your best. Be the best you can be. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Tell them, be a great, great teammate. You know, it, surrender your ego to the team. and uh, you know, Team ego overrides individual ego. And I tell them, you know, attitude is everything. And uh, those are things that I think you learn through sport, through the ups and downs of sport, through the ups and downs of competition. And those are the things that I try to impart on young kids when I talk to them.
2: Jim, this has been fantastic. Um, I think our listeners, both uh, youth coaches and parents, are going to uh, get a lot from your insights. And I, I personally want to thank you for your support of Positive Coaching Alliance, and being part of our National Advisory Board. Uh, and thanks for all this, uh, these wonderful insights
0: today.
1: Well, it's been an honor to speak with you. It's an honor to be a part of a PCA. And I look forward to
0: talking to you again. To learn more about responsible sports, including downloading valuable tools on how to help your athletes bounce back from mistakes, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful Responsible Sport parenting and Responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.